Will you bow with me as we pray? God, we want to acknowledge this morning corporately as a local representation of your family that, Lord, there is no one who can compare to you, our great God, the Lord of salvation. And we affirm that this morning. We affirm that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to you, God, but through him. And so, Father, I pray as we gather now around your word, I pray specifically for those you know who are here today, who are not in a right relationship with you, God, I pray that you'd be gracious and merciful to them today. Give them the gift of faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Allow them to experience the peace and joy that comes from being in a right relationship with you. And for those of us who, by your grace and through faith in Jesus, are your children, I pray that you would restore, as the psalmist says, restore unto us the joy of your salvation this morning. We commit this time to you and ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Thank you for being here this morning, and for those of us joining online, I trust you are having a blessed morning as well. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning, or perhaps at home in your living room, that would be brave enough to actually stand up and say, Pastor Calvin, I never need encouragement. Of course not. And I didn't expect anyone would stand up, and if you were a person who did stand up, would have to go right into confessional prayer and ask for forgiveness because you're lying. Because we all know from our personal experience how much we have benefited from receiving encouragement. Amen? Put up your hand if you know I have benefited when others have encouraged me. Is that your testimony? That's my testimony. Many of you are familiar with my good friend, Bay Forrest. He's spoke here a couple of times. And uh, Lord willing, he's already booked the date to be with us next Father's Day at Fire Up the Grill 2023. So we're excited about that. And there's many qualities that I appreciate about Bay's character, but there's one in particular that I have benefited from greatly, and those are his words of encouragement to me. And in our, my friendship with Bay, I would describe his strategy of encouragement, uh, boring from the sport of boxing. Bay has a one-two combination of encouragement with me. He loves me enough to jab me with the truth, but then he always immediately follows that up with a cross shot of encouragement. We all need people in our lives who care enough about us that are gonna give us grace-filled reminders. God knows we need encouragement, doesn't he? And in Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 to 13, listen to this. The Bible instructs us to encourage each other every day. Did you hear that? Not seldomly, not if I think about it, if I remember to. As the family of God, we are to, according to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, we are to encourage each other every day until the return of Jesus Christ. And if you look through the New Testament at the life of the early church, you will see that encouraging one another was a regular part of how they did life together. They spurred one another on in their faith, in unity, in hope, in joy, in strength, in perseverance, and in faithfulness, and fruitfulness, and in the certain return of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a real problem in the life of a church if encouragement is lacking. People will quickly feel unloved. 
People will feel discouraged. People will feel defeated as they face trials of many kinds. And most critically, people can become hard-hardened to sin and its deceitfulness. We need to encourage one another every day until the Lord returns. And so as we continue in our series this morning in Colossians, I want you to pay real close attention to how Paul encourages this young congregation in Colossae, who themselves were under increasing opposition. They were facing attacks from various groups outside the church who were refuting their claim that now as Gentile believers, they were heirs to the promises of Israel. And their opponents outside the church were putting it back in their face and said, no ways, you do not belong to the people of God. You don't qualify to belong to the people of God according to the law. And Paul, concerned that the confidence of these new young believers that they had found in Jesus Christ would somehow be damaged. So what does he do? He writes to encourage them. And his concern is that they will become mature in the faith and fully assured of the hope that they have found in Jesus Christ. And that is my prayer for this morning as we open God's word and as we leave here this morning, that we will leave changed. Either you will become a follower of Jesus Christ, or if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will leave mature in the faith and fully assured of the hope you have in Jesus Christ. That is my prayer for us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23 in our time this morning. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. What Paul wrote to the small congregation almost 2,000 years ago is still so relevant for us gathered today as a local representation of God's body. Because we too are increasingly becoming marginalized. As the church of Jesus Christ, we too are facing more and more opposition from the secular society that we live in, who scoff at our faith and who mock the stands that we take on God's word. God's word is relevant to our lives today. And in these three verses, I want us to highlight this morning that Paul gives three grace-filled reminders to this young congregation who were under increasing attack. And he starts first by helping them to remember who they were. Remember who you were. Once you were, he says, meaning formally. He's writing to them, once you were formally alienated from God estranged from God, cut off from God, separated from creator God and the God of Israel because of their sinful nature. Now I know and have been told many times that it's a dangerous thing to paint a group of people with the same brush. But brothers and sisters, when it comes to who we all were 
prior to being rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, God paints every one of us with the same brush. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 23. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, so that we can remind ourselves through these first three verses in Ephesians chapter 2, who we once were. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, no one is, you know, is not included. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And then if you go in that chapter to verse 11 and 12, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizens in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Listen to this, without hope and without God in the world. I'm not sure there's a better description of what it looks like to be alienated from God than without hope and without God in this world. And you may be here this morning because God has orchestrated in your life for you to be here this morning and you might say, that is how I feel. I have no hope and I do not know God and I'm in this world. That is the most critical position any human being can find themselves in. Without hope, without God in this world. But as we read on in verse one, not only did Paul remind them that they were once alienated from God, if that wasn't bad enough, he says to them, you were also enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Alienated and an enemy. As I was reading this week, I thought, you know what, as a believer, I get and I understand the truth that because of my sinful nature, I was born separated from God, alienated from God, cut off from a right relationship with God. We kind of get that, but I don't think we often take enough time to reflect that we were not only separated from God, but we were enemies. We were hostile to God in our separation. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12? 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever is not with me is against me. Friends, there are only two categories of people in this world. Those who are with Jesus and those who are against him. And Paul, in his grace-filled reminder to this congregation, reminds the believers at Colossae that once they were not only alienated from God, but they were enemies in their mind as evidenced through their evil behavior, hostile to him in their minds. You see, being alienated from God affects every aspect of one's life. And Paul highlights in these verses the inseparable connection between our thoughts and our behavior. Listen to how one author 
helps us to understand this connection between being evil in our minds and how that is exhibited through our behavior. He writes, sinful behavior twists the mind so that it becomes even more at odds with God. And then the twisted mind propels us into even greater hostility and depravity. The depraved mind then commends the evil behavior as good or natural or as an alternative lifestyle. Do you see the connection between our mind and our behavior? This really hit me this week as I was studying. Alienation from God is not a passive separation. It involves people being hostile towards God as manifested through their behavior. Evil deeds grow out of evil thoughts. This is why becoming a follower of Jesus Christ requires a change in our mind and a change in our hearts in regards to who we are and who Jesus is and our need for him. And once our mind, by God's grace, has been open to see who we are, but how great his love is, and by his grace we put our faith in Jesus Christ, changed mind, changed heart will result in changed behavior. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Our minds and our actions go together. A renewed mind is critical from moving as an, an enemy of God to a child of God. It is critical to living a transformed life. And if you're frustrated, you find yourself stuck in the same patterns of sin, and you can't seem to get victory, maybe your mind needs to be renewed. Listen to what Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, sorry, verses 5 to 8 says. Romans chapter 8, verses 5. Those who live in, according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Listen closely. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Isn't that good news? In verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, enemy of God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, alienated from God, cannot please God. And that is what the Colossians were, that is what Paul is reminding them of who they were, and that is who we all were at one time. People in the realm of the flesh who could not please God. A healthy lesson I learned this sabbatical through a sermon I was listening to was the need to daily preach the gospel to ourselves. Daily preach the gospel to yourselves. It changed the way I start my prayer when I'd go walking in the morning. I would preach the gospel to myself. So in the context we have today, wake up and say, God, I once realized I was alienated from you, separated, cut off from a right relationship with you. Not only that, I was hostile towards you, God, in my mind as is evidenced through my behavior. And you start preaching the gospel to yourself in your prayer to God, you know what it does? It causes you to pause and to reflect on who we all were. That is who we all were. Once alienated, enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But praise God. 
Praise God that that was not the end of the Colossians story, nor is it the end of our story. And as we see in verse 22, Paul follows up his jab of truth that he tells them that once they were alienated from God, but then he hits them with a shot of great encouragement. But now you have been reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. Hallelujah. Yes. Paul encourages them to reflect on who they once were, but he does not want them to camp there long. He says, once you were. That's, that's your former past reality. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. This is now your present reality. The danger is the enemy of our soul, Satan, the father of lies, will work overtime. And you know this because you've experienced his strategies and his schemes. He will work overtime to keep your minds focused on once who you were in an effort to discourage you and to keep you from experiencing the victorious, forgiven life we have in Jesus Christ. That is why we must intentionally, daily turn our focus as Paul did in his encouragement to the Colossians not only remembering once who you were, but then secondly, remember what God has done. Amen? Once you were, but now he has. What has God done? Paul reminds the believers in this congregation, he has reconciled you. He has reconciled you. The one we were once alienated from, God the one who we were enemies of our minds towards, God, took the initiative to restore to us the opportunity to have a relationship with him. Isn't that good news? He took the initiative to end the estrangement, to end being cut off, to end the separation between us and himself caused by our original sin. And how did he do that? The Apostle Paul explains to them in verse 22, by Christ's physical body through death. This is how he was able to provide a way for us to be reconciled to God. And the cost to move us from being alienated to reconciled, the cost to be moved from being an enemy of God to a child of God was high. It was costly. It took the ultimate sacrifice, we've been singing about it this morning, made possible only by the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, Christ took on a human body, a body of flesh like yours and like mine. Then in submission to his Father's will, he took on the role of a sacrificial lamb to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be reconciled. To God. 1 Corinthians 5 7 refers to Christ as our Passover lamb, who was sacrificed on my behalf, who was sacrificed on your behalf. Paul writes in Ephesians 5 2 that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Just so we could be reconciled with God. So we could be saved from the just wrath of God for our sins. 
And when did he do this? Once we had everything cleaned up and we were walking in obedience? No. While we were enemies of God is when God made this possible through the physical body of Jesus Christ through death. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His substitutionary death on the cross that paid the full penalty for the sin of all who believe made reconciliation with God, our creator, possible and actual. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Just think about that. Sometimes we get so familiar as we, by God's grace, are able to gather together year after year. Think about those words. How much does God love you? He made him who had no sin to become sin for me. To become sin for you. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Are you tracking with this? Are you following? Are you listening? Have you noticed what did we contribute to this whole beautiful act of grace of being reconciled to God through Christ's physical body by death on the cross? What did we contribute? Nothing. If you're wondering if God loves you, I pray through the power of his Holy Spirit and through the truth of his word, something is going on in your heart this morning. He loves you. Don't ever forget it. He loves you. God took our sin and put it on Christ, who was without sin. Then he took Christ's perfect righteousness and put it on us. God provided the way for us to be reconciled to himself so that the way Jesus Christ, the supreme reconciler and sufficient reconciler, could present us to the Father. No longer as alienated or enemies, well, what does he encourage the church in Colossians with? Look in your own Bible. No longer alienated in enemies, presenting us to God as what? Holy in his sight. Without blemish and free from accusation. Wow. What transformation is available through Jesus Christ, the sufficient and supreme reconciler. This is incredible. Because of, our, of his holiness and our unrighteousness, we were once not able to be in his sight. But now through the sacrificial death of Christ on our behalf, anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord can be made holy through the righteousness of Christ and experience peace and joy in this world for being in a right relationship with God, justified, no longer alienated, but reconciled to God, without blemish and free from accusation. We see Paul using both sacrificial and legal language here to convey the goal of Christ's reconciling work on the cross, to present us to God as holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. 
like animals suitable for sacrifice under the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Colossians, and us here today, through the death of Christ, the perfect sacrificial lamb can be presented to God without blemish. And like prisoners set free from accusation by a judge in court, the Colossians, through the sacrificial death of Christ, became blameless and faultless and reconciled with God. Listen to this good news. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, because of what Christ has done on the cross for us, the gift of God so we can be reconciled, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Christ's sacrificial guilt-incurring death made it possible for all alienated from God to be reconciled to himself, to be presented as holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus paid the penalty of God's wrath against our sin. How does that impact you? Brothers and sisters, when I studied this passage this week and I allowed the Lord to speak to me and to to help me to realize how great of a salvation he has provided for us. He prompted me in my heart that at this moment in our service this morning, we need to show God how much we appreciate what he has provided for us through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm encouraging you right now, if you are saved, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you have been moved from being alienated from God, being an enemy of God to a child of God, and now have hope in this world because you have God, will you stand to your feet and can we say thank you to God from hearts that are grateful? Father, we just stand here in this moment in the middle of the sermon to say we remember. We remember who we were, but we remember what you've done. Thank you. Oh God, help us to be a people who rejoice what you have done on our behalf. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. I love the end of Ephesians 2. Verse 13, I'm going to return there just to remind you. Verse 12 says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world. But listen to verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So after helping the believers in Colossae, remember who they were and remember what God has done through Christ 
He finishes off in verse 23 by giving, him a, giving them a third grace-filled reminder. Remember your responsibility. Remember your responsibility. He says in verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. I love what the one commentator Garland says. I think it's on the screen for you. In Paul's theological understanding, divine provision does not preclude human responsibility. While reconciliation is complete in Jesus, there is this ongoing process of sanctification that is still being worked out and requires our cooperation with the Holy Spirit. There has to be a response on our part. Yes, because of what Christ has done, we are in a right relationship with God, so positionally, we are able to enter into this beautiful process called sanctification. And the purpose of reconciliation is to move us from being people who are enemies of God, hostile to Him, as seen through our evil behavior, to people who are holy, set apart for God's glory, for God's purpose, blameless and above reproach. And as we walk with Christ daily, putting to death the desires of our flesh and growing in obedience, we are being progressively sanctified, more looking like the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Never perfect in this life, but progressing. Are you progressing? Are you progressing? Just as our former actions revealed that we were once hostile in our minds towards God by continuing in the faith, that is evidence that we are truly reconciled. And when we die or when Christ returns, whichever comes first, our sinful nature will be completely eradicated and we will be perfectly sanctified. Assurance of salvation and perseverance in salvation go hand in hand. I'm going to say that again. Assurance of salvation and perseverance in salvation go hand in hand. Those who have truly been reconciled will persevere in faith and obedience. Because in addition to being reconciled to God, we are declared righteous. We are actually made new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God. Amen. That's why we gave him the glory. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. With being reconciled, we have a new disposition that loves God, has a heart to want to obey, and is energized by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I love what one author said. Remembering what God has done, grace drives our sanctification. That's why we must never forget what God has done. It drives our desire to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in becoming more like Christ. I want to read to you from Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 and, four, 11 and 12, sorry. For the grace of God has appeared that offered salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. If you are here this morning and you say, I'm saved, but you are not eager to do what is good, I think you need to spend some time with the Lord. 
Because those who are being truly reconciled, there's this disposition that is eager to do what pleases the Lord. Something, do you remember we read earlier? We couldn't do while we were alienated from him. And so Paul says, continue in the faith. Continue in your faith, proving yourself truly reconciled. And he gives three images that I just want to wrap up with this morning. He's, what does that look like to be someone who is continuing in the faith? Established, firm, and not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. Established, firm, and not moving away from the hope held out in the gospel. Established and firm. This relates to a, a structure, a solid foundation. As you know, if you're going to build anything that is going to have lasting substance... The foundation is critical, correct? As I watched coverage on Hurricane Ian this week and saw those little thatch roof beach huts that were all over the beach, I knew they're toast. There's no foundation there. But to build a house or an office building that will withstand hurricane force winds, you have to have a solid foundation. And so we as believers, in order to continue in the faith, we must build our lives, establish our lives, and remain firm in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our foundation. He says, do not move. Do not move, brothers and sisters, from the hope held out in the gospel. Remain steadfast, true to the hope of the gospel in the face of all the opposition and particularly in the face of false teaching." Found it interesting that the root word on which this adjective steadfast come from means to sit. To sit. Paul is saying continue in the faith by remaining firmly seated on the gospel. As one author said, as a skillful rider on a spirited horse. I remember the last time I visited Bay and Peg in Colorado. For those of you who don't know Bay, he's six foot ten. So Bay's horses are not like the ponies you see at the Orono Fair. They are monster horses that he orders from a special ranch in Texas that breeds horses for those God has blessed with vertical ability. I don't like horses. I don't like heights. Bay's backyard backs onto 150,000 acres of state land and Colorado has lots of high heights. And I can tell you when he put me on that horse, he was laughing his head off and Peg was taking pictures because they'd never seen their little Calvi so scared. <laughs> but I can tell you as I went up the slope of the mountains and as I rode beside drop-offs, I tell you what, I wasn't goofing around on that horse. My feet were firmly in those two things. I don't even know what they're called. Stirrups, I don't know. Is that what they're called? Stirrups. And my backside was firmly seated on that saddle and I was holding the reins of that horse and let me tell you I was established firm and not going to move from the hope that I had in that horse and that saddle and those reins you know it's a funny story but do you see how unintentional sometimes we just walk as followers of Jesus Christ we can't be careless I love the verse that says, through his divine power, we have everything we need for godliness. Brothers and sisters, established, firm, sit on that gospel, hold tightly to the gospel, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Having been reconciled to God, we now have the responsibility 
through his divine power to remain established, firm, not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. And did you notice at the end of verse 23? Committed to serving him as ministers of reconciliation. Look at Paul's testimony. This, gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And you might think, well, that's good, Paul. I'm glad he was, an, he was called to do that, Pastor Calvin. Okay, I'll let God's word convince you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 19b to 20. Do I have a responsibility as someone who has now been reconciled? This is what the Bible says. God reconciled us, including Paul, to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not excused. You have the responsibility to be a minister of reconciliation. But that's not all. If, in case you don't believe it, he goes on to say, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's a sense of entrust. He has entrusted us with this incredible good news. He's entrusted it to us. He's given it to us. But there's a responsibility that comes with it that we are actively becoming servants to who we are, ministers of reconciliation. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When was the last time you had a conversation with someone who is alienated from God, hostile to God as evidenced through their behavior, and you told them you need to be reconciled to God? Lord, help us. Once we were alienated from God, hostile in our minds because of our evil behavior, but now he has reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death. And he has given us this message of great hope and great encouragement. The message of reconciliation. Ministers of reconciliation. Ambassadors. As if God was making his appeal to those in the domain of darkness to be rescued. Are you committed? Am I committed? God help us. Father, thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy and for your word. I am so full of thankfulness this morning that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Thank you, God, for providing Jesus Christ, the supreme, the sufficient reconciler, so that we no longer have to remain alienated from you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. We are so grateful this morning for your mercy and for your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can, you can be seated. Every March, some of you may not know, we run a basketball camp for kids in our community, for little kids. And on the very first day, we teach them the basics of how they can be successful as a basketball player. It's called the triple threat position. They have to be, starts with our stance, established. So you can't get pushed over really easily. But from this position, there's three things I can do. I can either shoot the ball, I can pass the ball, or I can dribble. That's what we teach them. And as I went through this passage, I was like, wow, 
Using a sports analogy, Paul was giving them the triple threat position of how to remain continuous in their faith, in the midst of all opposition, established and firm. And from there, three things. Remember who you were, but don't camp there. Reflect and rejoice on what God has done on your behalf and resolve to live as a child of God. Triple threat discipleship strategy for how to move forward and become more like Christ. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, you do not have the peace and joy that you witnessed in the tank this morning, please don't leave this building. God loves you and we love you. We would love to meet you at the front afterwards and pray with you so that you can have your sins forgiven. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you know that you have not been continuing in the faith, please come forward. Let's pray together. Let's get right with the Lord and let's move forward. Amen. God bless you.